WDET is supported by the College of Business Administration at University of Detroit Mercy. UDM's Master of Business Administration is designed to accommodate the career needs of professionals across a variety of work organizations. More information at business.udmercy.edu. It's the Metro on 101.9 WDET. I'm Tia Graham. And I'm Nick Austin. The Metro, your daily source for news, arts, and culture. The stories driving Metro Detroit forward and today. On the program, workers at the Marathon Petroleum Detroit Refinery voted to authorize a strike at the facility. But... What does this mean for the facility and is a labor stoppage imminent? We'll speak with the president of Teamsters Local 283 later on the show. But first on the Metro, public transit remains a hot topic throughout Metro Detroit, whether we're talking the people mover in Detroit or transit in Oakland County. And if you're getting around Detroit, most of us are taking a car. But that's not what many people want, both in the city and the neighboring suburbs. A large number of state residents want public transit to expand, and this point was highlighted in November of 2022 when Oakland County voters approved a $68 million millage for public transit. And due to that millage, a recent proposal for a 492 Rochester route that would connect riders from Oakland University to Somerset Mall was, once again, proposed. To discuss the proposed route, we have Commissioner Dave Woodward here. Dave is the chairman of the Oakland County Board of Commissioners and a longtime public transit advocate. Commissioner Woodward, welcome to the show. Oh, Tia, thank you very much for having me. This is great. Awesome. So jumping in, what does the line look like and how often will it run? Well, frequency is like the one thing that's absolutely critical to make transit work better. I mean, so that it shows up at a regular level so you don't have to plan days in advance that you can be able to take it. But um, I'm happy to, to report, I mean, tentatively for a, a, a April-ish start launch um, uh, this year that you'll be able to get from Oakland University to Somerset Mall, to downtown Royal Oak, that actually connects down into Ferndale. And at both of those points, Somerset um, and even the Royal Oak location, you'll be able to connect to the fast bus and come all the way down to downtown Detroit, which I took the fast bus to studio today from Royal Oak. So and this I, is, it describe was it, yeah. 30 minutes, yes. two bucks. See, okay, Drops so, me off, didn't have to park my car. And then when I hear that, and I think so many people around here, especially at the station, but just in this area in particular, walkability is such a huge thing or just getting somewhere and not having to take my car or, you know, spend extra money for gas. So talk a little bit about, you know, just having that connection right now you're talking about from Oakland University or Somerset Mall all the way down down to Ferndale, downtown downtown Detroit. It gives you it gives people autonomy that they didn't have it before. It does. I mean, the the Rochester, Rochester Hills route, I think is symbolic for a lot of reasons. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people in this, I mean, in Metro Detroit and even around the country, remember the story of the walking man of Mr. Uh, um, Robertson, uh, James Robertson, that uh, had to walk 20 miles to work. Never missed a day, never was sick. Uh, His, 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 uh, uh, manufacturing job was in the Rochester, Rochester Hills area. And this route, while it doesn't pull to the front door of that, it certainly would take that walk out. Um, there are clearly a lot of people, people who don't have a, a vehicle or choose not to drive. Um, I mean, owning a car is expensive. Let's not deny that. I mean, it's not just the gas. Yeah, exactly. It's literally the car. Uh, <laughs> exactly. It's just, just expensive. Uh, and uh, mobility and connecting people, I mean, connecting communities, connecting pe- uh, workers to jobs, uh, I mean, seniors and others to healthcare. Uh, it, it is it is freedom. 
Um, mm-hmm. We have all sorts of anecdotal stories across the county of individual seniors that are homebound that don't drive, that are able to connect out because of our expanded transit service in the north and the west end of the county. We have stories of workers able to get to jobs easier because of the ex- new expanded route out into uh, Novi. And so the Rochester route is one more committed promise that we said we were going to expand transit, we were going to expand fixed routes, and we're going to be able to do that at, rap- at a rapid click. And the voters approved this millage in November of 22. The money didn't start arriving until like February, March of last year. And just the amount of growth that's happened in a short period of time is great. Um, you asked about, I mean, like how, how often will it run? Um, I want it to run, I want every route to run as fast as the fast bus. Um, but the reality is that you need drivers, you need vehicles, and these are been challenges um, mm-hmm. in, in the field. So uh, we've got to work on a frequency. That's how transit is going to work better. Um, people need to be able to get to where they need to go in a reasonable time without having to plan for hours and yes. how to get there. Yes, I was going to say you you hit you you hit one thing that I was thinking about was senior citizens and and, and people over the age of sixty or even people living with disabilities trying to transportation back to to. to doctor's offices or visits or even going to the grocery store, simple things that most of us think about, you know, just take for granted. Those type of things are going to be uh, fixed with this type of bus route, this service. It, it is definitely better. I mean, we hear stories and, and I, seniors call me regularly, say, Dave, thanks for helping us get to the doctor. Yeah. But you know, we also live and we want to be part of society. We want to go out to uh, the bars and the restaurants. We want to go to entertainment. We want to go to the community gathering places. Mm-hmm. So it's not just, yeah, thanks for getting me to the doctor. <laughs> but there's these other things that we need to get to. And as we've, I mean, grown our, I mean, our transit system in Oakland County. Uh, we're partnering with four local commuter transit agencies um, around the county, and then Smart is the the, the largest entity that, has, that that runs the fixed routes. And, and with intentionality to extend hours of service, to ten, um, extend places where people can, I mean, get to, which I can just say, um, we've got more service to more locations, driving more people to the places they want to go. And the fact that we can do that, and we've been able to do that with the resources that the voters so overwhelmingly um, said, Oakland County, we trust you to make this happen. For the first time in my life, um, the political will is aligned to improve transit in this area, and we should seek on the opportunity to deliver for future generations. So when we think about, you said the funds just started to roll in, you've been really working and really, really seeing a growth within the past few months. What are some of the other things that you all are going to see in the next few months uh, in terms of uh, the service? Yeah, I mean, you've already raced me to April and everyone <laughs> says, well, we got to get it up and running first. Um, I think that, I mean, there's a few things, I mean, smart and can speak for the work that they're doing to improve the rider experience, bus stops, et cetera, recruiting drivers so that yeah. um, all the routes that are planned to be scheduled can run um, and a predictable level to get people where they need to go. Uh, for me, it's looking at frequency. It's looking at um, how do uh, we do a better job connecting our downtowns f- through whatever mode of transportation. I mean, I mentioned that I came down from the studio from mid, mid-Royal Oak to, down, to downtown Detroit here. Um, or midtown area. Right? So this is a school that I went to. Um, $2, super easy, easy to plan. Um, and we, we need that level of convenience. I plopped it in the app. It told me where to go, when to be there. And I, I, we want to see that level of frequency for more. I mean, we realize in this area, we are a car, we're a car country. Yeah. Um, most of the people who ride the bus have little other options there. Yeah. I mean, this is the only way to get to work or to the places they need to go. Um, but there is an growing number of people that says, if you show me how to use this, I will use this. I mean, there's not a sporting event that I come down that I don't take the, of the bus. Mostly, it's a lot cheaper than parking um, and more convenient. You walk out and, and you go. I mean, I, I joke that I, I sent my kids and my wife uh, to the pink concert on the bus. I mean, like this, it, 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 is, it is easy to do. 
Um, is it perfect? No. Um, better frequency is going to get us where we need to go. Uh, and so that's what over the next year that I'm really yeah. looking forward to doing, as well as improving some of the more curb-to-curb commuter service, particularly for those who have other mobility issues and can't get to the places they need to go. And I think about what you just said. We're right now we're chatting with Dave Woodward, the chairman of the Oakland County Board of Commissioners. And and I, I'm thinking about, you know, going to sporting events or going to different events, whether you're coming from downtown to the suburbs or whether you're coming down to, you know, to downtown Detroit mm-hmm. itself. How are you all going to work, especially in Oakland County, um, to combat those fears and those attitudes against public transit, especially throughout, you know, Metro Detroit? Yeah, I mean, some of it, I think it's a question you have to demystify it by bringing people on the bus. I mean, it literally is that simple. Yeah. I mean, once people have done it, they're like, why don't we do this all the time? Uh, and so that, that's a little bit of it. I mean, I was talking to some young high school uh, students um, up in Pontiac uh, about a week ago and asked who has ever been on a bus. And there was one person that's ever been on the bus. And then I said, like, how many, if I could get you from here to downtown Detroit for sporting events and things like that, would you use it? And like, everyone's hand goes up. So there's a little bit of the demystification there. I think working with public leaders that express like how important this is. Uh, we need more employers that when you know that, um, that rely on public transit to get workers to jobs, we need your voices to be told of why this is important. Um, so that this is not just about a good thing we do for those who have less means, but this is what's necessary to connect our communities. And um, I can tell in just a short period of time in Oakland County, Oakland County is all in for transit countywide for the first time in my life. And as a result of that, the, even people who were, was opposed to the ballot question yeah. a couple of years ago, like... They're coming to the table. They maybe don't like it, but they're actually talking about, well, if it works this way, this is actually helpful for our economic development along this corridor. We've got other communities looking at economic development um, and figuring out how transit is, is an integral part of it. So I think we, I mean, we're changing the dialogue and the conversation. And um, I mean, I'm a free tour guy. So anytime someone wants to ride, ride with me. <laughs> I love that plug. I love that plug. So my, one of my last questions to you is Macomb County has been a, a holdout in the regional transit for a little while. And you're talking about different communities coming together and wanting to connect. Are you seeing any movement within Macomb County trying to kind of do a similar regional transit measure? Well, I, funny you mentioned that. Um, one of the things about Macomb County, which people probably didn't realize, Macomb County has been countywide in support of transit. It's the only county up until our last this last election um, that was. And so I think there is sometimes a mischaracterization that Macomb County doesn't support transit. It's been countywide for as long as I can remember. Uh, and the message was, uh, Oakland, you're not even countywide. So before we move to the next step, can you meet us at the table? And so we're there. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm very confident that over the next year, um, you're going to see an increased dialogue. Our partners with the Regional Transit Authority talking about bus rapid transit. There is an unprecedented amount of federal Uh, capital dollars for public transit. Shame on us if we can't get our act together to bring those resources here to make transit better. And my last question to you, what will regional transit look like as we go forward, you know, for southeastern Michigan? Well, I can just tell you, like, so I um, came back from a conference last week. Uh, I said, you know, I'm going to take the bus back, back to Detroit. I had some meetings in Detroit. And I couldn't tell you how easy that was. I've never, I'd never done that before. Um, There's new transit service to the airport that's coming online. Uh, For me, the future is, at the end of the day, uh, that people can get to where they want to go in a reasonable way. I came here to the studio for $2.00. Uh, Uber was going to cost me thirty. Ooh. I mean, so I mean, it's a, a it, it's a it's a dollar and cents question. Um, more people being able to get to more destinations, 
um, and deliver, I mean, through a system that delivers more rides at a higher frequency, that's, that's the way forward. And I, and I genuinely, I feel it and I see it with the people who are part of the conversation today that we are in the best position to make a, a positive step forward the next year or two. Dave Woodward, chairman of the Oakland County Board of Commissioners, Commissioner Woodward, thank you so much for joining us on the Metro. Tia, thank you so much for having me. This is The Metro, the new show connecting Metro Detroiters through stories and conversations about the news, arts, and culture affecting our city and the region. Coming up, workers at the Marathon Petroleum Detroit Refinery voted to authorize a strike at the facility on Friday. We'll learn more about the issues at the plant and what the vote means from the president of the union and one of its workers next on The Metro. WDET is supported by the College of Business Administration at the University of Detroit Mercy. UDM is offering a new Master of Science degree in ethical leadership focused on sustainable, ethical, and inclusive problem solving. Admission is open to qualified applicants with a bachelor's degree in any field. Course selection is flexible with no prerequisites, four required courses, and six electives. Learn more at business.udmercy.edu. Welcome back to the Metro on 1019 WDETFM. I am Tia Graham. Nick Austin yes, is here as well. It's true. I am here. <laughs> and as we've been mentioning, one of the things that a lot of folks are talking about, especially coming out of last year with so much uh, labor disputes, so many strikes, so many opportunities, and it looks like successes for unions. We've wondered what would 2024 look like for us, and a strike may be on the horizon right now at the Marathon Petroleum Detroit Refinery. In fact, two weeks ago, after their contract expired on January 31st, more than 90% of the 273 workers represented by Local 283 voted in support of authorizing a strike. To learn more about the vote and the concerns of workers at the refinery, we're joined by two folks who know a lot about what's going on there, starting out with Steve Hicks, the president of Teamsters Local 283. Steve, welcome to the Metro. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, and we're also joined by Travis Jackson, an operator at the Marathon Plan. Travis, thanks for joining us on the Metro. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so let's just get started here in terms of the workers at Marathon Petroleum. How many are represented by the union, and uh, how much of the total workforce is this? Um, there's about 280 um, Teamster workers, and um, Travis, you know how many all together with management and that? I wouldn't be able to uh, speak on the management side of it, but there's union-wise, there's the high 200s. High 200s, okay. And you know about how much of the facility, do you have a percentage estimate of how many people that is in terms of the facility? I would think it's probably 80%. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. And what are the concerns that workers have had that led to this vote? I mean, 90%, that's a lot. A very insulting um, offer for the company on a 2% wage increase, which is Ridiculous with 2022 inflation and 2023 inflation rates. People are getting 18 to um, 25% on the first year of most contracts. Now, if you've noticed the UAW, the casino workers, the airline pilots, UPS, 
They're getting major con- um, improvements from taking concessions for years. Yeah, yeah. And Travis, would that mean then that from your perspective, it's a money issue? If they came in with a better offer for the work you were providing, we might be able to avoid this labor stoppage? Or how do you see it from your workers' standpoint? Uh, it's a wage thing for sure, but it's also a work-home-life balance, like schedules. You know, we're we're kind of tired of having to be at work, you know, 80 to 85% of the time to be able to make the money we need to make. You know, we miss a lot of time with our families. We work, you know, it's a 24-7 operation, so yeah. holidays, birthdays. Yeah, well, so let's unpack that a little bit, right? Because uh, your scheduling might be a little bit different than what other folks out there are used to. You mentioned 85%. I'm not quite sure what that percentage references. So what is it like for you guys working there at the plant in terms of work-life balance? What's your expected schedule? Well, our base schedules, uh, we work four days on, four days off, but we flip days and nights every week. So we'll work 12 hours during the day one week, 12 hours overnight the next week, and we switch back and forth. But our four days off are never guaranteed, so we can be, we can volunteer to work, we can be forced to work. So, that, you know, you might work 10 days out of 14, 13 out of 14 days and nights, you know, what we call haze days where you get off in the morning and have to be back the next morning. So it's a very short turnaround sometimes. Yeah, it makes it a little difficult to schedule things out in the future and you don't have expectations of what your schedule is going to look like. Correct. But then that would mean if they came in at a high enough offer for money, you might be willing to put up with that a little bit more as long as you're getting compensated properly as you guys see it for that work and schedule uh, inconvenience. We're pretty strong about changing some of these schedules. Oh, okay. So, so could it? Could we be in a situation then where you might change the schedule, and then maybe the two percent works, or the two percent will never work? Two percent will <laughs> never is, work. You, you would never take a two percent raise. That's a slap in anyone's face in this day and age. Okay, doesn't even comport with cost of living then. From not your at perspective. all. Not okay. at all. Okay. Uh, I guess I'm just trying to figure out how much of it is scheduling versus how much of it is monetary, because again, not everybody has an opportunity to see the work that you guys are putting in over at the Detroit refinery. But I do know that uh, even though you voted to authorize the strike, strike hasn't happened. It's not necessarily imminent. So what are the next steps, Steve? We're going into bargaining Tuesday with open mind. Hopefully the company's going to come back and make some better offers. All right. And take us seriously. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll look forward to finding that out more after Tuesday. We're going to keep monitoring this story. Steve Hicks, president of Teamsters Local 283, as well as Travis Jackson, operator at the Marathon Plant in Detroit. Thanks for joining us on the Metro. Thank you very much. Thank you. This is the Metro on 101.9 WDET. Just to note, we did reach out to Marathon Petroleum also for an interview. At this point, we have yet to hear back about our request, but we will keep you updated with any developments. This is the Metro, helping you discover Detroit beyond the headlines, bringing you the voices and visions that are driving our city forward. Nick Austin here with you, joined by Tia Graham. And other things that we are doing right now are preparing for the upcoming presidential primary. And in Dearborn, officials, Michigan City clerks there, are working to ensure everyone has the access to vote. WDET's Nargis Rahman sat down with Dearborn City Clerk, 
clerk George Duraney about how polling places are printing ballots in Arabic and keeping Arabic translators around on voting day. This election is different. It's unique because, of course, it's the first time in the state of Michigan that we are allowing early voting. And in our case, uh, it's nine days before the election day, February 17th through Sunday, February 25th, which also, by the way, includes President's Day. Very, uh, I mean, I think that's a good thing that our presidential primary includes voting on President's Day. We are doing videos. We are doing PSAs. We're, we're doing a lot of information on our City of Dearborn website to let people know about these nine days of early voting. I think the word is getting out. Uh, it's hard to tell because we won't know until people actually show up. Uh, and we don't know what that number is going to be. I think the state of Michigan is estimating about one-third of all voters for this presidential primary will vote during those nine days of early voting, and we're prepared for that. So if it's less than that, we might have, we may be overly staffed, and if it's more than that, we may be struggling a little bit. So the city of Dearborn also has the option to vote in the Arabic language. Can you talk about anything that is being done to let people know that those are available? And can you tell me about how many people have requested them if they have? What we do is just about everything that goes out in the English language now for elections also goes out in the Arabic language. For instance, when we we have a permanent uh, absentee voter list of approximately 15,000, we sent a notice out, an application notice out to those 15,000 voters. Uh, we wrote it in Arabic and in English. And so out of those 15,000 that we sent out, we've received about 6,000 requests back from folks that do want a ballot. Two out of the 6,000 requested the Arabic ballot. So it's quite low compared to folks that just want the regular English ballot. We've been promoting it as much as we could in English and in Arabic on our website. We have Arabic ballots, sample ballots available on our city website. They're also available here at the office. So if somebody comes into the office and needs an Arabic ballot, we can give them a sample ballot. And of course, on election day for absentees and every day during early voting, Arabic ballots will be available. How many Arabic ballots do you anticipate that you will be printing for that day? We normally print, our minimum order is 100 per precinct, so we normally would be ordering 4,800 since we have 48 precincts. Some precincts, actually, we've ordered a couple hundred because we don't want to be caught short. I would say on on an average, we probably do about five to 6,000 printed ballots in Arabic. In terms of how the community is reacting to having those ballots, I know they've been around for a little bit. Do you feel like people are more aware and are looking for those ballots? We work with a, with a lot of groups that advocate for our community and, and advocate for the, for the Arab American community to let them know about that. I'm talking like groups like NAACP, M-Gage, League of Women Voters, Voters Not Politicians. I meet with those groups on a monthly basis, and I let them know what we're doing here in the city of Dearborn so they can pass that word out and advocate for those people that need the Arabic ballots. And I think it's a good partnership. We've been working really well for the last couple of years on making sure that the word gets out to the community. So I, I think the word is getting out there. But again, it's a slow process, too, because some 
times people don't realize that those things are available to them. But we make sure that the, uh, we have Arabic-speaking people at all of our polling locations now, too. So if, if someone's having problems with the English language, at least there'll be somebody there that can talk them through it. Still looking for people to help us on Election Day here in Dearborn. We always could use even more people that speak the Arabic language. So if anybody's interested in, in working that day, uh, we have openings. That was WDET's Nargis Rahman speaking with Dearborn's city clerk about the poll workers or what, what poll workers are doing to ensure everyone has access to the vote in Dearborn. Now, fashion, 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 fashion. I love fashion. Fashion comes in many different forms, and because clothing has become cheap, good fashion doesn't always need to be expensive. Thrifty fashion will be shown off at the Rags to Riches Detroit Fashion Show and Gala this Sunday. To talk more about this six, this year's sixth annual show, we have the director of the show, Stephanie Bedell. Thanks for joining the Metro. Hello. Hi, thanks for joining the Metro, Stephanie. Yes, thank you for having me. Awesome, awesome. So this is the sixth year. What has made the fashion show so popular? Um, thrifty fashion. Um, it's kind of a trend at this point. Um, however, I started thrifting years ago. And now, like I say, it's a trend, so it's kind of picking up, and everybody's kind of like, okay, I can find this here and there, and that's kind of how it's become popularized. But, yeah, that's pretty much it there, just a trend, the one trend. So when you think about the trend, you especially for myself, I, I did I do a lot of thrift shopping as well, but I've seen those mm-hmm. prices going up a little bit because of this becoming a trendy thing to do. So what are some ways yeah. that you're telling people to, you know, how are ways that people are combating those uh, price increases? Um, I would say um, check your local thrift stores for when they have manager specials or if they have special discounts on certain days. Those are different ways that you can kind of go around that price curve. Um, they also have VIP programs uh, with such uh, thrift stores. Um, the Salvation Army also has a five for five sale every Friday, so every yeah. weekend. Yeah. Yeah. So just look for deals such as that. And what should people expect yeah, at this right, year's yeah. Rags to Riches Detroit show? What are some of the themes that we're going to see? I know the, the the main theme is black excellence. Yes, yes. Black excellence is, is what we, that's pretty much our theme that's been going on for the last couple of years. Uh, we have evening gowns as well as uh, more eccentric um, garments. We also have a model turned designer who will be showcasing some secondhand um, garments and her first ever collection. So we just, we get really creative. We upcycle and it's just, it's going to be a surprise. It's going to be great. It's going to be great. <laughs> when we think about the fashion show, of course, if we just think about thrift shopping in general, there are times when I'll hear people say, you know, I'm, I don't thrift shop or I don't do that or I don't do this. What would you say, mm-hmm. especially as we're trying to get rid of fashion, not necessarily get rid of fast fashion, but trying to be a little bit more sustainable? What would you tell people about that, especially if they're talking about, you know, I don't shop at a thrift store? Well, I mean, shopping at the thrift store helps, you know, the the world, the earth um, with sustainable fashion because there is so much fast fashion that a lot of times it it ends up in the landfills. And if more people were open to thrifting, to saving money, you know, we could potentially, you know, save some time here on the earth. And like I say, you know, um, we have all these things that are going on, global warming and all that type of stuff can kind of help us to reduce Mm -hmm. by actually thrifting Mm -hmm. so 
So Rags to Riches yeah. Detroit, sixth year this year. Yeah. Um, give us a little bit of the rundown once again. It's going to be a black tie uh, event. You have Correct. to show up dressed to impress in the Detroit fashion, of course. So give us the rundown. Yeah, so Rags to Riches has turned into a black tie event for maybe the last three to four years. Um, so we're all black with the exception of a white button gown for any male or any androgynous uh, woman. Um, they can wear white as well, but for the most part, it's all black, no color, and our strict our, our dress code is strictly enforced for that evening. Yeah, and your sponsor, you're sponsored by the Salvation Army. Can you talk about that partnership yeah. a little bit? Yes, yeah, so we've been working with the Salvation Army for about maybe four years now, so um, that is where the clothing is generated from, so I'm able to go into the thrift stores and kind of create looks as I go and just pull the items that I need to actually bring the show to life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right, Stephanie, is there anything else you want to talk about with this upcoming event happening this Sunday, February 24th, Rags to Riches, Detroit? Yeah, so if anyone's interested in in attending the show, uh, we have tickets available on Eventbrite. Um, VIP is sold out. However, we do have general admission, which is equally as great. Um, with that ticket, you'll get seating, the fashion show, you'll have dinner and with the bar. Um, we have performances. We have an art gallery. So it's just an overall just great event. And tickets are only $100. We also have a friends and family code circulating for 25% off. And that promo code is TAKE25. And you put that in and you can get 25% off to come and join us on Sunday. Awesome, awesome. Stephanie Bedell is the director of the 6th Annual Rags to Riches Detroit show, sponsored by the Salvation Army. It's happening this Sunday, February 25th. Thank you so much for joining us on the Metro. All right, thank you for having me. This is the Metro on 101.9 WDET, connecting Metro Detroiters through stories and conversations about the news, arts, and culture, and thrift shopping. (laughs) affecting the city and our region. Coming up, we'll hear about gun control laws passed last year after the shooting at Michigan State University. Keep it locked right here on the Metro. Welcome back to the Metro on 1019 WDETFM. I am Tia Graham. I am here with Nick Austin. Just a quick weather check today. Sunny with a high near 40 degrees. Tonight, it's going to be around 27. And throughout the day, expect about 5 to 7 miles per hour wind. So it's looking pretty good out there this Monday, February 19th. That's right, Tia. But on to some news that's really uh, been imposed a little bit later on. I mean, it's something that we all had to deal with last year, and uh, it's been about one year since the devastating shooting happened at Michigan State University. But later during the same year, Democrats passed gun control laws to ensure lethal weapons are not as easily distributed to the public. In the latest episode of the Mishmash podcast, Chana Roth and Alethea Kasbin spoke about red flag laws and other gun control laws that were passed last year. They've recently gone into effect, and Alethea began by discussing some of those gun laws. 
The package also included safe storage requirements for firearms, universal background checks, and eventually lawmakers also passed restrictions on firearm purchases for those convicted of domestic violence offenses. And like you said, Shana, this happened pretty quickly after the shooting at MSU last year. But these were also all policies Democrats had been talking about for quite a long time um, before this shooting happened. And they just sort of were sparked by this event and they took quick action. Yeah. And since then, many top officials have called for more work here. And I guess we're going to have to see wait and see what happens on that front this year. Right. These the the actions that they took after the shooting last year were sort of billed as a first step. Um, but we haven't seen a lot of movement um, since then uh, after those things. So some of what people are talking about is ending immunity for gun manufacturers. We have a pretty broad law in the state that provides that and also more restrictions or regulations, I should say, on firearm stores. And it seems like one of these things that Democrats definitely have an appetite for. They definitely have been talking, as you said, for a while about changing the state's gun laws. But I do wonder if because they've already passed laws on this topic, if it's going to get sidelined for other items on the to-do list, like transparency bills, the budget, economic development, and there's a lot more. I mean, there's no shortage of things that Democrats want to get done, especially given that they could lose that trifecta that they've been enjoying at the end of the year. Agreed. I mean, not to sound like a broken record here, but House Democrats are tied in the House right now, so they aren't going to be able to do anything like this without Republican support, which just isn't going to happen. That's it for us this week. You can hear our full conversation with Senator Anthony on the Mishmash podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks, Alethea. Thanks, Shana. That was Shana Roth and Alethea Caspin on WDET's Mishmash podcast speaking about red flag laws and other gun control measures that were passed last year. This is The Metro, your daily source for news, arts, and culture, driving Metro Detroit forward. I'm Nick Austin. And I'm Tia Graham. Michigan's manufacturing economy deeply involves foreign investment. But that's caused a political problem, as many state residents don't want foreign companies investing in their communities. As the presidential primary approaches, some residents are advocating for a president who prevents foreign investment from reaching the state. Michigan Public's Steve Carmody spoke with a number of Michigan voters about the issue. Last October, hundreds of people gathered at a horse farm near Big Rapids to hear Republican presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy. But in what might have been a foreshadowing of Ramaswamy's unsuccessful presidential campaign, not many people were holding his campaign signs. There were many more signs attacking plans by a Chinese company to build a $2.4 billion battery manufacturing plant in their rural West Michigan community. On that, Ramaswamy struck a chord with the crowd. Over my dead body will that come here to the United States of America. It is not going to happen. We will not let our children become a Chinese, bunch of Chinese serfs. Big Rapids is not alone. People in other parts of Michigan have raised concerns about other foreign businesses, with an emphasis on those from China. Opposition to foreign investment has fallen into several camps, those specifically opposed to Chinese firms, others upset by government incentives for green companies, and concern about potential environmental impacts.
The last is Marjorie Steele's main concern. We're sitting at the kitchen table in the home her parents built half a century ago, about five miles from the planned Chinese battery plant. When it comes to presidential leadership, Steele would like to see what she describes as a radical departure from current government policies, specifically a reduced emphasis on foreign investment. She points to the North American Free Trade Agreement, or NAFTA, as an example of where federal government efforts in global trade have had a negative effect. Things haven't gotten better since then. You know, um, global trade has not increased the quality of life for the average citizen. It has increased the wealth of a very few. Mark Heisel works with companies in East Asia looking to invest and build in the U.S. As one might expect, Heisel believes foreign investment is a good thing and vitally important to Michigan's economy, though he concedes it has become more complicated in the past decade. Even uh, when things became more difficult for China, uh, Michigan has still been able to step up and see that this is a, a reasonable play um, and makes sense, good for, the, for uh, the business community. Heisel says the main concern for those involved in foreign business investment is the need for consistency of federal policy. He says that's where presidential leadership is needed. When you go to to think about an investment that's worth potentially billions of dollars, that you're going to be able to realize that through the long stay. Um, And so having, having consistency and certainty is really very important to our clients. Meanwhile, people in Big Rapids are not waiting for presidential leadership. Opposition to the Chinese battery plan has only grown in the past year. Orman Hook describes himself as one of the co-architects of the local effort fighting the battery plant. Business has to be seen as a security, a national security. Yeah, deal with your friends, but not your enemies. In November, in what may be a clear signal to presidential candidates, Green Charter Township voters recalled all members of the township board who voted to support the Chinese battery plant development plans. That was Michigan Public Steve Carmody speaking with Michigan voters who do not want to see more foreign investment coming into the state. Coming up on the Metro, we'll speak with a doctor at Corwell Health about the viruses going around right now and what people need to do to stay healthy. That conversation next on the Metro, your daily source for news, arts, and culture. Drive in Metro Detroit when we return right here on 1019. WDET. Welcome back to the Metro, right here on 1019 WDETFM. I am Tia Graham, and I am here, of course, with Nick Austin. Yeah, of course, of right? Course. I can't play hooky on my own show. <laughs> it's much more difficult when they give you the show. I know. Right? It's just like I thought about the same thing. Like, oh, we can't call off anymore. No. We can, but. I mean, you might have to hear about it later yeah. if you're not here. Exactly. That's all right. We're, I'll call off pretty soon, too. No, where's all. Nick? I don't know. Tia, did you know now that Michiganders are vaccinated, COVID is not quite as deadly as it was a few years ago, but that does not mean the virus hasn't been going around, and it doesn't mean that it's not something that we need to continue to be worried about. So what do people need to do to stay protected from COVID? And what are the other viruses going around these days? To discuss this, we're joined by Dr. Matthew Sims, 
He is the Director of Infectious Disease Research at Corwell Health in Southeast Michigan. Dr. Sims, welcome to the Metro. Thanks. Happy to be here. Awesome. Awesome. So let's start with COVID. How many people are sick with COVID right now in Michigan? Yeah, you know, it's hard to tell the exact numbers because as COVID has become just more part of our daily lives, a lot of people don't test anymore. Um, So, you know, we used to have like very exact numbers Mm -hmm. for how many how many positives there were every day because everything got reported to the state and that that sort of has dropped off and home testing came up. But now people aren't even home testing as much as they used to. So we don't have exact numbers, but I can tell you, you know, I was on for the hospital last week, you know, as one of the infectious disease attending. So I'm not the only one there. There were several different infectious disease attendings at any given time. Um, and I was seeing about one patient a day um, in the hospital with COVID. So what should people do if they are sick with COVID? Do we still need to quarantine ourselves? Like, what is the process now? Yeah, so um, I have not yet heard an announcement from the CDC. There's been a lot of talk in the last week or two that the CDC is going to change their current guidelines uh, about isolation. But right now, the, uh, the the standard is that um, if you've had COVID, once you know you need to isolate for at least five days um, uh, after you know you're you're starting to feel better, um, and uh, you know, and then you know wear a mask out to about ten days. But there's a lot of talk that they're going to change that, um, and that basically they say once your fever's broken, you can stop isolating. Um, there's a lot of, you know, sort of debate about that. You know, some people say, you know, they're just doing that because they recognize people aren't listening to the recommendations to isolate for five days. Um, and our, people are worried that it'll increase the spread of COVID. Um, but, uh, and we don't know for sure what they're going to say. They haven't announced it yet, as last I looked. But um, so that's it. Right now it's isolate for at least five days. Um, you know, if you're still having symptoms, then it's 10 days. Yeah, we're speaking with Dr. Matthew Sims, Director of Infectious Disease Research at Corewell Health. And uh, Dr. Sims, Nick Austin jumping in here next. I think this is one of the areas that I find most confusing, a lot of folks find confusing. It's that there's so many different ideas now on how we deal with COVID, right? Depending on when you were real hyper-focused on it, the last bit of information you might have on the conventional wisdom might be different from your neighbors, and we all seem to be dealing with different ideas and how we deal with COVID, how dangerous it is moving forward, et cetera. So for you now with an opportunity to talk to folks, uh, what do you think is a place that we're way too varied on our understanding of how to react with and deal with COVID that you'd like to clarify or hopefully get us more on the same page with based on what you've been seeing out there and in your understanding of this disease? Yeah, you know, your summary of of how people think about this and why people think differently about this is spot on. And we saw this right from the beginning, right? COVID, end of 2019, beginning of 2020, brand new disease hit people. People were getting hospitalized. People were dying at very high rates. Um, And, you know, it was new and we weren't ready for it. Um, And so there was a lot of, what do we do? Do we mask? Do we not mask? Do we this? Do we that? You know, how do we avoid it? Do we shut down? Do we keep going? Do we let everybody get it and just get herd immunity that way? And, you know, there was a lot of different opinion and there was a lot of change, right? So, you know, we were learning 
things faster than we could communicate them. And sometimes we'd be communicating something and it would change the next day. And so this is why, you know, a lot of people, you know, unfortunately got this thought that, you know, people like Dr. Fauci were lying to them and, you know, hiding things and whatnot. And it's not that that's what was happening. It's that things were changing so fast that we would communicate one thing one day. And I remember doing an interview really early on during this, before even the first cases hit, and people were like asking about masking, and I kind of said, well, you know, surgical masks are not designed to protect the person wearing them, they're designed to protect the people they're facing. Um, So wearing a surgical mask isn't really going to help. And that's still correct, but when we got to the point where everybody was wearing surgical masks, that helps because everybody protects everybody else. Right, right. So, so things change. And then, you know, the vaccines came and there was a lot of contention about the vaccines and masking. How long did we keep masking in schools and in hospitals and in just our everyday? So here's what I would say. COVID, when it first came, is a different virus than it is now, right? It's mutated, it's changed, it's gone through, um, you know, lots and lots of different types, right? We went the original, then alpha, gamma, uh, delta, yeah. uh, Omicron, and then all the subtypes of Omicron that we've hit since then. It's not as dangerous as it was in the beginning. Now, some of that is probably the, the way the virus has changed. <laughs> a lot of that is the fact that most of us have a fair amount of immunity to it, whether that's because we've been vaccinated or because we've had it, right? So most people have antibodies against COVID now, um, and that helps protect us. Now, it doesn't necessarily prevent getting infected, as you mentioned, but it, it generally prevents you from getting super sick and hopefully prevents you from dying. Yeah. The people who are most at risk are the people who don't have great immune systems, right? And that includes older people whose immune systems just don't work as well as they used to. And it includes people who have had a transplant and people who are on treatment for cancer and people who are getting all these medications they advertise about that where they say, this will affect your immune system, let your doctor know if you've been to different areas or that sort of thing. All of those things, you know, work by, you know, shutting down part of the immune system. Um, So all of those people are at much higher risk. And so are people who already have lung disease, you know, things like that, people with a lot of, you know, comorbid conditions. So what I would say is if you are at high risk, that you have to really think about protecting yourself, right? So vaccines, number one, right? Everybody should be vaccinated. Um, If you don't want to do the RNA vaccines, there's a protein vaccine that's more like a standard vaccine. Sure, Dr. Sims, and Um, just to jump in on clarification, right, because I think a lot of us did get vaccinated the first time around, Mm -hmm. but even I right now, I'm not sure, how long does that hold? Does that mean that when people say you should be vaccinated, does that mean even if I had that first one, you know, getting it now a couple of years later again, what exactly does that mean specifically? Yeah, so the current recommendations, that's a great question, the current recommendations are to get, to be sure to have the latest booster. Yeah. Right. So it, if you remember, and this is one of the things that got people upset, confused, et cetera, you know, they were changing the boosters as fast as they sort of could in the beginning. Um, but you remember we had alpha and that's when we got the vaccines and then it hit Delta and Delta was more deadly. And, and then we hit Omicron. And so the latest booster covers sort of later Omicron variants, not the most current, but they're later. And the current 
way the companies and the FDA and the CDC are looking at this is they're planning at least a yearly update to the boosters and, and, and with a recommendation that, you know, you kind of get the COVID booster around when you get your flu shot. Mm. Um, and while the, the vex, while the virus may change faster than that, there's no way we can completely keep up with the virus. It changes too fast. Yeah. Um, so the thought is that you get, and, but, but ones that change, you're probably protected by the last booster fairly well, right. right? Because it only changes so much. If it ever had a huge change to where it became much more dangerous and the immune system, the old antibodies weren't protecting, they would probably make a new vaccine pretty quickly. Right. But the idea is that people didn't like this. Well, we'll tell you when to get the next booster. We may change, you know, sometimes they said, okay, it's just time to get another booster. Yeah. And sometimes they changed it and said, okay, get this one now. Yep. And so the idea is if they can put it on a schedule, even though it's not a seasonal virus like flu, yeah. more people would be willing to get it yeah. and and hopefully keep everybody more protected. Yeah, and that's the goal here with what we're trying to do. And Dr. Sims, uh, I got to let you go as we are coming up on the end, but we will keep you in the Rolodex to let people know a little bit more about staying healthy through the flu and COVID uh, on the Metro. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Sims. Happy to. Yeah, so I uh, just had a little conversation about making sure you're staying safe this winter, the rest of the winter. But we do have Ryan Patrick Cooper here to talk about In the Groove. What a transition. <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> nine out of ten doctors agree that In the Groove is good for your health. I'm going to so... need to see some sources. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, man. Uh Listen, we got a great show coming up. Yeah. Weekdays 12 to 3 in the groove. We're entering our third week. I do have to say the love that we have gotten for this show and a lot of the new music programs has been incredible. And today's going to be no different. So I hope people are ready to vibe out in the groove here on WDET. All right, Ryan Patrick Hooper the in the groove at noon. Thanks for joining us. And that's going to do it for this edition, February 19th, 2024 of The Metro. You can listen to recent episodes online at WDET.org and make sure to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform. This show is produced by Sam Corey and David Lyons. Music by Sam Bobian. Our news director is Jerome Vaughn and executive producer is Adam Fox. You heard stories from Narcus Rahman as well. The Metro is a WDET production, a listener-supported service of Wayne State University. If you like what you hear and you want to support The Metro, consider becoming a member at WDET.org slash donate. This is WDET-FM, Detroit NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. Thank you so much for listening. WDET is supported by the College of Business Administration at University of Detroit Mercy. UDM is offering a new master's degree in ethical leadership focused on sustainable, ethical, and inclusive problem solving. More information at business.udmercy.edu.